welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. Produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithili Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. In this episode, our producers Timothy Neal and Matt Barlow speak with Dr. Radhika Govindrajan, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Washington in Seattle, which is my alma mater where I did my PhD, so I was especially excited about hearing from her. Radhika's work covers multi-species ethnography, environmental anthropology, the anthropology of religion, South Asian studies, and political anthropology. And her research is especially guided by a long-standing interest in understanding how human relationships with non-humans in South Asia are variously drawn into and shape broader issues of cultural, political and social relevance, from religious nationalism to elite projects of environmental conservation and animal rights, from everyday ethical action in a time of environmental decline, to people's struggle for social and political justice in the face of caste discrimination, patriarchal domination and state violence and neglect. Today's conversation explores the ways in which this relatedness shapes and enables different kinds of stories, political relationships and even kin-making. How do people relate differently to monkeys and boars, for example, and how do those different relationships foster different kinds of conservation practices and projects? Or how does the introduction of the Jersey cow to South Asia interrupt Hindu nationalists' cow protection agenda with its exclusionary and racist implications for Muslims and other non-Hindus? Radhika also asks us to take a careful look at the intersections between speciesism, racism, and sexism, and suggests that some of the rush to post-human critique has bypassed the questions of whose humanism and whose humanity we are post. She also talks to us about her methodological approaches, from an approach that engages with historical archives and other partial or contested sources, to the possibilities of a patchwork ethnography that doesn't privilege the few researchers with the funding and support to do long-term deep ethnographic fieldwork. In the process, Radhika also tells us about her book, Animal Intimacies, which is an ethnography of multi-species relatedness in the central Himalayan state of Uttarakhand in India. It was awarded the 2017 American Institute of Indian Studies Edward Cameron Dimmick Prize in the Indian Humanities and the 2019 Gregory Bateson Prize by the Society for Cultural Anthropology. So without further ado, here are Radhika, Matt and Tim. Yeah, so as is the formula here at Conversations in Anthropology, we sort of like to start by asking a little bit about your trajectory and how you became to be an anthropologist. So what sort of academic life or other kinds of trajectories brought you to where you are today? Uh, thanks. My training actually began as a historian and uh, my undergraduate and master's degrees were in history in Delhi. So I moved to the U.S. to get my Ph.D. and I moved to uh, Yale University and the anthropology department there, I think, is very historically minded. So my advisor, certainly, uh, Keshav Ramakrishnan, was someone who was insistent on the importance of doing both archival and ethnographic work and thinking about ethnographic questions in much longer context and thinking about how uh, colonial and even histories of environmental change had shaped uh, contemporary questions. And so I think that kind of historically minded sensibility uh, in the anthropology department at Yale was what drew me to it. And that I've always, I think, thought of my work as being situated at the cusp of these disciplines. 
Was there a, a split between be, possibly becoming a historian and becoming an anthropologist? Or in some ways, having having read your work, you know, it is so intimate, and we're going to get to get to the intimacies of the ethnography in a minute. But yeah, was there a, was there a moment of choosing between? Yeah, very much so. I think I was quite conflicted because I was very committed to history, and I think, as I said, you know, some of some of it was really the institution um, that I was going to and the person that I was choosing to work with because I felt that uh, both at the anthropology department and Shivi, my advisor, were uh, would help those two things together so it felt actually like it was making a compromise between picking a kind of classical history program or a classical anthropology program and I think for me the other part of this was I didn't want to do um, a kind of just classical archival project because my master's thesis was on uh, colonial wildlife conservation policy and I found that so many of the questions that I was examining in the archive really had this kind of and we're shaping present conservation policy. So I was thinking about the past and the present as being in conversation with each other and thinking about the past as having molded the present already. And so I wanted to think about those connections. And so it made sense to be in a department that would allow me to take that kind of long durée view of conservation. And my initial project of study was just to look at wildlife conservation and it kind of exploded from there and went into other directions, which I think is one of the joys of doing you know, you, you go in with a kind of bounded idea of what you want to do, and you find that the the limits that you've set yourself explode very quickly. So I think the book, of course, has is the accumulation of 10 years of moving in very different directions. But for what I wanted to do initially, being in a department and in a discipline that would allow me to think about uh, the present and to think about its long kinds of echoes in the past was what made me decide to go with anthropology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of really resonates with me at the moment. I'm sort of in the middle of writing up my PhD thesis and sometimes really sort of struggle with how much historical content uh, I'm able to put into these articles or chapters. Is that still something that you're sort of, that you have to grapple with when, with your current writing even? Yeah, I think that's, you know, it is a challenge always to try and think about how um, these these moments might speak to one another. And I think of them, you know, I think of history not so much as just kind of context, but as alive, and that these historical questions resonate in the future in particular. So I'm thinking about the resonance historical questions in multiple ways, thinking about them through the archive, thinking about how they have a kind of life in um, in contemporary moments. And I think that's how I've thought of it much as woven in a way that is inextricable. So it's not so much a matter of how much history you add and how much ethnography you add, but how do those things come together? For our, for the sake of our audience, um, we are going to talk about Radhika's book and ethnography, an ethnography of multi-species relatedness in the central Himalayan state of Uttarakhand, a book known as Animal Intimacies. But I, I'm kind of still, I, I, I want to follow down this history route because I, th- I think it's a really interesting issue for ethnographers. Um, because in my experience, uh, and I know lots of uh, anthropologists have grappled with this, finding histories in the archive or finding mm-hmm. histories in mm-hmm. documents can lead you to have actually very different accounts of the past to your interlocutors. Was that an issue that, uh, that I guess, came up in your work at all, that the histories that you were bringing to the sites um, and the experiences were, were different to those who were actually living in those places? And it comes back to a larger question of what counts as an archive. Um, and that 
to me, I think, is a question that historians have taken on such interesting ways. So there's obviously the kind of colonial archive, and you're looking at you know colonial law, you're looking at administrative discussions, but there's also, for me, uh, the question of how you read that archive, what other kinds of voices can you recover from it? Uh, how do you read the archives uh, against the grain? And again, there's so much good historical work that has done that, that has tried to examine the kind of multiplicity of voices in the archive, to read the archive as a kind of, uh, as the product of much dissonance. And I find that in addition to that archive, that official kind of paper archive, there are also archives of memory. And that was something that I tried to focus on in the book as well. So uh, one of the chapters in the book examines uh, this history that people would tell of a pig who ran away from an experimental veterinary lab. And uh, people in the mountains claim that this pig went wild very quickly and had lots of children who are now the wild boar that uh, live around the region. So they're telling a history of the pig's wilding. And I think of that as an archive. So, you know, there's about 40 years or 50 years of congealed memory there that people try to tell the story. So I place that archive against the colonial archive of lawmaking around hunting and conservation. And I try and think about how these competing archives shape um, the present in particular ways and shape people's experiences of and responses to post-colonial conservation. And so for me, the question is not so much how do you bring one archive in than to bear on the present, but how do you bring together multiple archives and how do you tell multiple histories? Um, so, you know, when many colonial officials, when they heard this, or many, uh, sorry, that was a slip of the tongue, many forest, contemporary forest officials, when they heard this history, would argue that this was, you know, a fantasy of people's imaginations, and that wild boar in the region were wild, and that this whole story about a pig who ran away and became feral was, um, as I said, the, a kind of fiction. And so for me, the challenge is how do you bring these multiple stories together and how do you let them rest in that tension and think about what history they're telling and how do they how do they tell the competing um, the or not quite the competing, but how do they how do they describe different ways in which the past is shaping the present? So following up on on your your wonderful Bateson Pro Book Prize winning book animal intimacies. So this came out of your doctoral field work and, and you've you've just talked there a little bit about one of the chapters. What what question was driving you when you when you first went into the field? You were saying it was about um, somewhat about wildlife uh, regulation, but was there a kind of core research question and, and was there a point that you remember where it really changed or really shifted for you? Yeah, I do think there was a core research question, at least one that I tried to make coherent for grant applications. But <laughs> I think that the broad question was about how uh, people and animals sort of live together and how this shapes notions of humanity and animality in the region. So it was a kind of broad question even then. I wanted to go in and do some work on conservation. I had a sense even then that, you know, the category of wild animal was fluid and I was interested in uh, understanding that fluidity. How do wild animals move out of this category of wildness? How do they become familiar, perhaps even domestic? How does conservation policy fail to recognize that? So I think those were the, the questions I went in with. And then I realized very quickly that these categories were even more capacious than I thought. So um, when I started fieldwork, there was this uh, growing kind of 
conflict and uh, a prominent animal rights organization in the region had filed a police report against several temples for allowing animal sacrifice. There was a court case that was being heard about the legitimacy of the practice. And I found myself really struck by how the conversations that were occurring around that were also very similar to conversations that I was tracking around um, conservation. So to give you one example, one way in which this appeared was to think about what obligations people had to gods and deities in the region. So many people were arguing that sacrifice was part of this relationship of mutual obligation and relatedness between people, sacrificial animals, and deities. And then at the same time, uh, there were also these man-eating leopards in the region, um, and people were talking about how sometimes man-eating leopards emerge as a result of the infraction of human devotees uh, where they fail to meet their obligations towards the gods. And I was struck by the ways in which these discourses were, and these uh, these claims were appearing in very different kinds of arenas. And so my, my net kept expanding in some sense. And my sense of what uh, my question was, was blown to smithereens. So if you, if you look at my notes, or if you look at my, my sense of chapter outlines over the months that I was there, it just, you know, it kept expanding. So it began with here are all the places where people talked about wild animals. And suddenly I was talking about sacrifice. I was talking about dairy production. There was conversation about gender and labor. There were conversations about conservation, but they had moved into questions of land ownership in the region, um, a new land politics. So I found that I was drawn into all these fields of study that I didn't quite expect to be drawn into at the start. Um, and I think that is, as I said, one of the kind of joys of doing fieldwork where you realize how artificial the questions you can begin with are. And for me, I think one of the, the most powerful uh, processes or one of the most powerful experiences of doing fieldwork was precisely this blowing apart of my question and a recognition that, that this would have to be a project that went into multiple spaces. And that was hard at a start because I didn't quite have a hook. You know, I wasn't working in a factory farm. I wasn't working just in conservation. I was working on people's relationships with a range of animals. And that was hard to articulate in a kind of two minute elevator pitch, if you will. It felt very broad, but I, I'm very glad that I stuck with precisely that kind of fluidity and that openness that I encountered when I was doing field work, even when I was writing this up. Could you describe for us a little bit about the process of turning that sort of that fieldwork and that dissertation process into a book and perhaps give us just a brief um, sort of overview of, of what ended up making its way into this wonderful book? All right, I can maybe begin with the second question first and tell you a little bit about the book and then describe some of the, the really arduous processes of writing this first sure, as a dissertation yeah. and then as a book. Um, <laughs> the book is about relatedness between humans and animals in the Indian uh, Himalayan state of Uttarakhand. And one of the questions that motivates the book is what it means to live a life that is knotted with other lives for better or worse um, and understanding how those knots of relatedness come to be tied. And I, uh, I'm interested in thinking about what it means to live a life that is gathered up with other lives, to think about how uh, persons are constituted through relationships. And I draw, um, obviously, on the work of Donna Haraway, but also on older uh, studies of kinship, on kinship in South Asian studies, and I'm happy to talk about that more later. But the book uh, examines this form of relatedness across multiple terrains. So the first chapter looks at questions of animal sacrifice, the conflicts over sacrifice that I was just talking about, 
And I um, examine how sacrifice is a practice that is given meaning by uh, kinship between humans and the animals that they sacrifice and suggest that uh, that at the heart of sacrifice, you actually find a kind of violent kinship. And I'm interested in thinking about how that violence might be productive of a certain kind of ethical stance towards animal life. And I explore how uh, the kind of grief and the remorse and the guilt that emerges around sacrifice is productive of that kind of ethics. And I'm also interested in understanding how that kinship between humans and animals is arrived at through practices of care labor that are gendered. So one of the things that I take up in that chapter is how women um, raise the animals that they sacrifice and how the very kind of arduous labor that they perform in uh, raising these animals shapes that sense of kinship. There's a second chapter on uh, the politics of cow protection and how that is tied up with dairy uh, farming in the mountains. And I uh, root that in this question of the materiality of different cows, which is a overarching concern for the book. So one of the things that the book does is take animals seriously as material individual actors. And I'm uh, interested in thinking about how the particular kind of personality uh, of animals shape these larger conversations about what it means to live in relationship with them. So one of the things I take up in that chapter on cows is how Jersey cows are uh, completely transform ritual practice in a way that was not anticipated in dairy reproduction programs and how uh, that shapes this politics of cow protection where villagers are less convinced Hindu villagers are less convinced that the Jersey cow is a kind of ritually sacred cow um, and how that complicates the, the right-wing politics of cow protection in the region. Um, there's a chapter that looks at the capture of monkeys from cities across India and their relocation to rural areas in the mountains and how that question of insider and outsider monkeys becomes a way for people to talk about their own kind of expropriation in the mountains and the ways in which uh, their own identity is being erased. There's a chapter on wild boar that I just talked briefly about, and I think about how people tell the story about the runaway pig as a way to critique conservation policies and their investment in a stable wildness. And I argue that the story of the pig actually speaks to how wildness is fluid and historically contingent um, and opens up a way to critique not just conservation, but also uh, the politics of caste supremacy in the region. And I'm happy to chat about that more later. And then there's a book uh, or there's a chapter on bears and this genre of talk about bears who abduct women and have sex with them. And I try and think about how women tell these, uh, I don't call them stories because there's a kind of fictive element to stories and this is often told as reportage. So I call it talk, which is what people say, bhalu ki baat. Um, and so I think about how women use this talk to both kind of mount a critique of patriarchal control over their sexuality but also to imagine a kind of pleasure that transcends the human animal boundary. And so that's what the book does. So the process of writing, that was that's a really good question. And I'll try and keep some of this short. I think the dissertation produced its own kinds of anxieties, of course. It was a question of how do you actually write so much of this material and how do you how do you do that process? It's a really um it's a really difficult uh, process and induces a lot of self-doubt. And I think one of the challenges for me was, again, working with the really wide-ranging material that is also part of the book and how to try and provide a kind of hook for that, if you will. One of the things that I did that I'm very glad I did was go back to my field notes. So I didn't necessarily go back to the dissertation, but I went back to my notes and I realized 
that you know there were certain in just say uh, dialogue or in things that people had said to me, there were certain things that I picked up from that that I thought were more important for the thesis. But when I went back to it, I was reading them differently, and I realized that there was a way in which um, you know there were other things that I would choose to highlight. So that's something I think I would say to people who are working on turning the thesis into a book: go back to your notes. Don't don't go back to the dissertation as a kind of originary document, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, go back to that moment where you're struggling with how to theorize something, you know, those little throwaway scraps of conversations that you write down and you don't know quite what to do with. And then those, those uh, really did open up new ways of thinking about the material for me. Um, I'd also done a fair bit of new fieldwork since the thesis. So that was nice to include as well. And the other thing that was different in the book, I didn't actually put the bear chapter in the dissertation. I don't think I knew at that stage quite what to do with it. You know, there was, uh, I, I didn't really understand how uh, to make it fit. So I didn't, I didn't put it in. I thought maybe this will be a kind of standalone article. And I went to a really wonderful conference, I think in 2014 or 2015, it was the feminist pre-conference of the South Asia conference at Madison. And, and this was really the kind of perfect forum to bring this. And I said, look, here's this genre of stories that I heard. And um, I had this wonderful room full of people to think with. There is a way in which writing the dissertation then frees you up to to take on the things that you didn't have the time or perhaps the capacity to do when you were working on your, uh, turning just field work into a dissertation. And so it's a really good time to build a kind of wider community and to reach out to people and to share ideas. And that process, I think, really helped the book. I have uh, any number of questions about that process. As a reader um, and as somebody who has written one book and promised to write another, it's kind of intimidating to see how coherent it is. So I always find these kinds of stories about <laughs> just hearing hearing that people like, you know, that there was a real process and, and some grappling is in some ways reassuring I know it's amazing how the final product always has so much more certainty than when you're writing it. And I think it's also funny for me to read it as a writer because I still see for myself that in the gaps and the the things that could have that I would might do differently even in the book. So I think for me there isn't as much of a of coherence, but I'm glad that it doesn't read <laughs> as completely incoherent. Yeah, the book is packaged into these wonderful chapters about interspecies relatedness between humans and each animal species. And each chapter is also framed around one key concept. And I'm curious here about the qualitative analysis that you've undertaken with this book and wondering at what point in the process did these modes of analysis or modes of description sort of become present in your thinking? So uh, did the experiences with the animals fall into those frameworks early on, like during fieldwork or was it during the process? Uh, of of writing the dissertation or writing the book that these sort of um, ideas of how to how to frame it um, came came together yeah I just wanted to say I love this question Um, it you know I think it's so important to kind of lay bare the the ways in which we construct frameworks and I think this question really speaks to that so one thing my advisor made me do when I was doing field work was um, send him a report at the end of every month and he said, you know, I want you to start thinking about chapters. And I go back to those reports. And, you know, in the early months, I said, I want to do a chapter on identity and animals. I want to do a chapter on sacrifice. 
I want to do something on conservation. And then the questions about, and then, you know, the cow protection thing really started up around the time that I was doing my field work as well, which was really, really interesting because um, this was before the national election of 2014 when the BJP came to power. And I think for a lot of uh, observers in India, there's a sense that that's when the politics of cow protection really began gathering steam. And that is absolutely not true. I think this was already really gathering steam when I was there in 2010. And I was a little confused because until then I'd sort of encountered cow protection as, you know, a, a 19th century movement and then some of the debates around slaughter. But I wasn't quite prepared for this kind of ground level upsurge around the politics of cow protection. So my early chapter outlines had these kind of broad themes that I wanted to do. But in another document, I was also keeping notes said about all the different kinds of animals. And some animals didn't actually make it in, you know, so there were things that people would say about deer, for instance, or about leopards. And leopards, I think, come in only towards the end of the book and the conclusion. But I think that what I found as I went back to my notes was that under each theme, I would see more and more of one animal. Right. So under sacrifice, it became about goats. Under cow protection, it was obviously about capacity. I think just because there were so many wild boar, I mean, that was what people were really talking about around conservation, right? The idea that you couldn't hunt them. And with monkeys, I mean, they were also doing crop damage. So, you know, that could have been part of the chapter on conservation. But when people were talking about monkeys, they kept saying, look at these outsider monkeys, look at them being in there. They were dropped off last night. So I think what I realized was that animal actually makes a particular story possible. So it's not, I don't think I could have substituted another animal for whatever animal chapter is hinged around. So I don't think I could have done the sacrifice chapter by subbing in cows, for instance, right? That was a story about goats. The history and conservation chapter and thinking about wildness was a story about boar. The monkeys just wouldn't have enabled that story. They would have enabled a different story, which is that chapter around belonging. So I think more than making the animals fit into a particular story I wanted to tell, I realized very quickly that just following these discussions, it allowed me to think about how the the history and the materiality of particular animals shapes particular histories, which is a key argument of the book, right? That we have to think of these not just as kind of human authored stories, but also as stories that are authored in some sense by animals and their particular trajectories and their own experiences with the state. Anthropologists of, of various kinds have spent a lot of energy, and this is an incredible understatement, uh, thinking and arguing about what yeah. best terms to describe what occurs between subjects, between different kinds of subjects. Some use kinship, some talk about care. There's a lot of care talk uh, these days in anthropology, recognition, relatedness. Um, in your book, you, you come down on the side of relatedness. Uh, I guess for the uninitiated which is another term of kinship. Uh, the uninitiated, what are the, the stakes here in these kind of debates between these terms? Uh, and why for you is relatedness the, the best term? I think that one of the challenges of writing the book for me was that multi-species ethnography or you know the anthropology of the non-human, to put it broadly, was really kind of exploding around the time that I was writing my thesis, so particularly around the writing of the book. And there are so many really kinds of wonderful frameworks with which to think. And for me, relatedness was the most kind of uh, compelling because it was something that really emerged in the ethnographic context itself. 
So I write in the book about how, you know, the language of kinship in particular was everywhere, right? So I open um, the book with this vignette from one of my very early uh, moments of fieldwork, uh, right after a particularly heavy monsoon in 2010. And I was visiting this woman whose home had been damaged uh, quite badly by the rains with an NGO worker. And the NGO worker was trying to convince this woman to leave her damaged house and to move to safer ground because the rains were continuing. She could have been trapped in the house. She could have been buried in mud. And this woman said, I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay in this room. And we said, why? And she said, well, look, I left for a day and my cow became sick and I can't abandon them because we're we're like one family. And so that language of family was certainly everywhere, which made me think of kinship. And that language of family was used, I think, even when people were talking about negative relationships. I think anybody who's been in a family knows that family uh, is a mixed bag, right? Kinship is a mixed bag. And I think that was very much the sense in which people were using it. So it it made sense in that kind of ethnographic context. But I was also thinking with um, within kind of multi-species work with people like Donna Haraway and other feminist scholars of, you know, the non-human, if you will, who have been thinking about how kinship might be one way to undo the boundaries between nature and culture, between genealogy and kin, um, between human and animal, right? To think about how race is constituted in relation to animality. And I think I found some of that work really influential as well. And I was thinking with an older tradition of the anthropology of kinship as well, that has been trying to think through how relatedness in particular might be a better way to think about how people form relationships and how those relationships are worked out in everyday life. And I'm thinking here of the work of David Schneider, who really laid emphasis on thinking more broadly than just kinship. One of the arguments that Schneider made was that the anthropology of kinship relied and naturalized American notions of kinship. So it made something that was particular, universal. And Janet Karsten takes that up and says, well, maybe we should be thinking about how relatedness is actually understood in ethnographic context. So I'm drawing also on on Karsten and Schneider and thinking about how kinship is done and performed in these everyday spaces through uh, the maintenance of relationships, of quotidian relationships. So I think that was why relatedness made the most sense for me as a kind of analytical. And it falls in for me questions of care. So I too am interested in questions of care. And once again, I'm really influenced here by feminists who have cautioned against the kind of naturalization of care and to think about the the broader political and economic context in which care labor happens. And so in the book, I think a lot about care labor. And so I'm very cagey about naturalizing care between humans and animals or framing it as a kind of an immediate positive, right? That women naturally felt this kind of love for the animals they were sacrificing. And instead I demonstrate how that kinship actually emerged through certain regimes of gendered production in which women became responsible for the bulk of care labor involved in raising animals and how this was also something that was uh, influenced by state policy, which has tried to link gender development with livestock keeping, for instance. A a number of key passages in the book that spring to mind, but one of them is that you describe your work uh, in the book as an effort to uh, show that multi-species relatedness draws as much on incommensurable difference as ineffable affinity between particular individuals for its emergence. And I think in the past couple of decades, the point of some critical environmental anthropology and work in the environmental humanities 
has been really to place the emphasis on affinity and background or critique difference. You know, we don't we don't want nature culture divides. What what do you think? I guess what what's your um, what's your position on that? How do how do we navigate this divide between affinity and difference? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really important question, and I, I'll provide a two part answer to that. So one that kind of relates more directly to my own ethnographic context, and one I think that speaks to broader debates in anthropology. So for me, I think it was really important not to think of relatedness as something that is immediately implies something positive. And I think Janet Carston puts this really well. She says studies of kinship often sort of give off this kind of warm, fuzzy glow instead of thinking about the kind of shiver of horror that also accompanies kinship. And I think that was something that I was thinking with as I was doing fieldwork what it means to actually see the, the dark side of relatedness and the violence of relatedness and what it means for people to be forcibly, to have their lives forcibly entangled with that of animals and vice versa. I think there's been a more recent move in anthropology also to try and critique some of the emphasis on mutuality in the earlier work in multi-species anthropology or in the environmental humanities. Elizabeth Roberts has a really wonderful piece on entanglements. And, you know, one of the points she makes is that some people don't have a choice but to always be entangled, right? So this idea that we recognize and willingly suspend ourselves in entanglements with the non-human overlooks the fact that some people have always been entangled, right? And that, that this is something that they want to separate themselves from. I've also, I think, really been influenced by scholars like Zakia Iman Jackson, um, and Benedict Rosseron and others who are doing work in critical race theory who point to the fact that, you know, this the kind of rush towards the post-human has really erased really uh, important questions of who is the human in the first place and who has been admitted to the ranks of the human. So when you say post-human, who's human are you referring to, right? And how does that actually uh, work to paper over the violence of the category of the human? And one of the points that people like Jackson make is that um, there are these traditions of black humanism, right? That uh, that the, that all that all humanism is not Western liberal humanism. So this the critique on humanism ignores the fact that there are multiple ways of being of imagining what it means to be human, and that we have to sit with those questions around race and gender before we can actually move in the celebratory way to announcing that none of us are human anymore and that we are all constituted through our relationships with the non-human. So I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, and the work of Benedict Poisseron, I think, is a really good way to think about this. She cautions against comparisons between, you know, race and animality, for instance. So this idea that, well, uh, she examines these PETA campaigns, right, that look at factory farmed animals and they say these are the new slaves. And she says, what does that mean? You know, it presumes that the question of racial violence is done and dusted and that we now have to move to animal violence. And instead, how can we think about multiple oppressions as intersecting and connected, but not necessarily comparable? So I think all of these questions about the, the cautions around post-humanism were really in my mind as I was working through this. And I think one of the reasons that I was really careful about this also was that it's impossible not to think about the violence of relatedness when you're working in the Indian context. And, uh, you know, one really kind of easy example of this to go to is thinking about the the Hindu uh, right wing, right? Uh, and thinking about Hindu supremacist efforts to 
established kinship with the mother cow and the kind of violence that that's unleashed against Muslims and Dalits and Adivasis and other minorities in India over the last decade, certainly. But there's a much longer history of violence against minorities in the name of the cow. And so that is very much an act of kinship, right? What you have there is the the idea that the cow is a mother um, to Hindus. And so I think it was really important to me to try and think through how this how this question of difference is true, not just between humans and animals, but also how to think with the regimes of power that humans, some humans exercise over other humans. I think that was partly what I was going for. And then one very quick final point, I think the other uh, reason to emphasize difference and not affinity is that there is sometimes a tendency to erase differences between the human and the animal, right? To say that the that the animal can be folded into human worlds and that this becomes a kind of liberatory move. And I think there's a danger to that as well. And I think it's important to rest with the idea that there might be ways of being that are outside human control, outside human knowledge outside human grasp. And that's what I was trying to do there as well, to try and understand how this relatedness emerges, not just because people know animals and fold them into their ways of being, but all this is navigated across difference. Towards the end of your book, you call for a critical anthropomorphism, which kind of builds on what you've just been talking about. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and perhaps why that might be challenging when anthropomorphism has such a bad reputation these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the people that I'm really inspired by is Franz de Waal. Um, and Franz de Waal has this really wonderful article from several years ago now, I think, where he talks about how so much ink is spilled on anthropomorphism and its uh, perils that we don't actually think about anthropodenial. And the hubris of imagining that emotion or other ways of being in the world that we think of as human, the hubris of that, that we imagine that these are only ways that humans can apprehend or have access to. And DeWall asks, what if we were to start thinking of anthropodenial as the greater sin and to open ourselves to the possibility that anthropomorphism is actually a way of questioning the, the supremacy of the human? or the exceptionalism of the human. And I think that is something that I find really powerful. Mm. And what Franz Wall I think is calling for there is giving in to anthropomorphism. Now, to me, why this is critical is because this is an anthropomorphism, you, you recognize the limits of anthropomorphism, right? You recognize what it means to be creative and to let your imagination wander. But I think you also give in to that project. And Jane Bennett has this really wonderful uh, part in Vibrant Matter where she talks about why we're so afraid of creative imagination, right? When did that become something that has to be kept out of any good academic writing? And I think in a way, the, the critique of anthropomorphism is some call for an old-fashioned objectivity. And we've really had these, these very robust critiques of objectivity and how... Um, that has emerged from this kind of colonial past. And I think that that anthropomorphism is entangled with that desire for being objective and uh, for producing kind of accurate scientific accounts. And so for me, a critical anthropomorphism is pushing against those demands for rationality and for objectivity and giving, and giving room for the ways in which we're always doing this work of creative imagination, even when we're working with other humans. So, you know, Marisol de la Cadena, I think, has another really wonderful way of thinking about this. She writes in her book, Earth Beings, about 
the ways in which all translations are in essence incomplete, right? And they are efforts to try and make incommensurate worlds commensurate and that we should be okay with translations that have gaps and ellipses in them, that there cannot be a kind of total rendering. And I think of this work to give into instinct, to give into relationships and to try and build from that and to recognize its limits, to recognize that it is a mode of knowledge production that relies on the imagination, but what mode of knowledge production doesn't. What advice do you have for some junior scholars who might be out there embarking on a multi-species research project at the moment, especially now given the current circumstances of the pandemic and the ensuing recession and climate catastrophe? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is becoming clear is that, you know, the academy and the discipline of anthropology with its investments in lengthy periods of fieldwork elsewhere is untenable. So I think one of the challenges, and this is not true just for multi-species ethnography or for multi-species research projects, but more broadly across the academy, is how do we think seriously about what it means to challenge systems of power within the academy and the structural violence of the academy and what it means to do research elsewhere in these ways. So I think that's a kind of broader question that I've been thinking about a lot recently. How do we imagine research projects in ways that don't fetishize long periods of presence that don't fetishize really kind of deep ethnography. And I think some of the stuff that I've been reading in the in the last few months has been really inspirational. So Saiba Varma, Gokche Gunal, and a couple of other people had a piece on patchwork ethnography. And how yeah, I we, loved that piece. <laughs> yeah, I love that piece too. I thought it was so great. And I think, you know, there's this been for so long this fetishization of thick description, deep ethnography. And I think there's a real value to that. So I'm not denying the value of having that kind of extended time, but I think it's what we've learned is that that is completely untenable. And again, that that's something that has only been available to a select few in the academy, given the resource constraints, given the kinds of really deep structural differences between programs that have the money to fund this kind of fieldwork and programs that don't. So I think we really need to uh, stop fetishizing a particular kind of long-term engagement is the only way to do quote unquote good work And so thinking about patchwork ethnography, thinking about thin ethnography in other ways, thinking about um, multimodal ethnography, thinking again about what other kinds of archives we might create. These are ways, I think, these are ongoing conversations that I think all of us should really be attuned to and participate in. On multi-species ethnography more specifically, my department at the University of Washington is uh, very kind of geared towards medical anthropology. And I think one of my colleagues had said to me a few years earlier that all anthropology is medical anthropology when you think about it. And I think in a way, you know, that's a good way also to think about multi-species research. I think there can be sometimes a rush to to do kind of hot theoretical work. And I think we're better off seeing multi-species uh, research as a kind of method right, rather than always a subject. And I think my advice to students or to junior scholars who are starting out is to really kind of not feel caught up in the wave of theory or to get caught up in the kind of hotness of the field, but to actually think about the ways those questions emerge in the context of their own research and to also build broader connections with other kinds of fields and not be contained solely by multi-species ethnography. You know, I think good, good, uh, research is one that is open to multiple connections. And I think that's something that every scholar should take seriously to build connections between various fields and various disciplines. 
And I'm aware that you're, you, you've got continued projects in India that are interested in elections and the democratic, I guess, uh, process as it relates to some of the, the things we've been talking about, uh, animals, interspecies relations. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what are you working on now? What's, uh, what's, what's holding your attention yeah, thank you. All kinds of things. Um, as you mentioned, there's a project on elections, and I'm interested in thinking about the social life of elections and what effects elections have on broader sociality beyond the time of the election. So I'm interested in kind of doing a social history of elections that moves beyond the time of the election specifically, and to think about how the kinds of uh, relationships that emerge at election time, the kinds of contingent events that take place during elections shape broader notions of sociality and what it means to live with one another in uh, rural India. That's also located in the Himalayas. I'm also doing a new project that I'm really excited about on scandals and what counts as scandalous in uh, rural India and thinking specifically around scandals that emerge in relation to sex, uh, land, religion, and marriage and how the nature of what counts as scandalous might tell us something about changing understandings of rurality. And the third project, which builds on some of this previous work, uh, looks at, as you said, the relationship between non-humans and democracy. In 2017, the High Court of Uttarakhand announced that it was bestowing personhood on the rivers Ganga and Yamuna. And the language of the uh, of the judgment was really interesting. It was drawing on quote unquote indigenous sort of Hindu belief, right? And I'm I've been thinking a lot about how we have to kind of be aware of the the ways in which um, certain kinds of religious belief are naturalized as indigenous to the land and the violence that that can enact, especially in contemporary India. Thinking about how this can then be folded into certain kinds of Hindu nationalist projects. So I've been thinking about what in making non-humans democratic kind of subjects with rights, but also uh, how we might think about the kind of dark side of some of these projects and also what relationship these new judgments have to older kinds of ongoing um, projects of trying to win rights for animals. So I'm trying to get away a little bit also from the idea that this is a kind of global rights for nature moment and I'm trying to think about the kind of longer situation histories of this moment. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating subject emerging. Uh, you know, similarly here in Australia and where I'm mm-hmm. uh, originally from, Aotearoa, New Zealand. But I cannot help but feel uh, it would be errant of us as interviewers to walk past a mention of scandal without, <laughs> <laughs> without asking just a little more. The, the category of scandal, uh, you know, completely fascinating one can you give us a little example of maybe of of something that that's moved in or out of the category of scandal that you're interested in well so I'm interested in you know one what kinds of terms people are using so there's you know there's no good translation for scandal but there are things like uh baval which is a kind of upswing or you know there's um which is, I think, the closest to kind of scandal. There are these these moments when something becomes scandalous and captures attention. So one of the things I've been interested in, uh, and this will be interesting to think about right now because of the Indian government's ban on certain Chinese social media apps, but um, I was really struck by how young women were using TikTok to kind of speak 
about their affairs, but also to speak to rumors that were circulating about their love affairs in the village and the consumption of that by uh, by people. And, you know, the idea that this talking back itself was a kind of scandal, right? That how shameful that they know that people are talking about them and yet that they're not shamed into silence, but are speaking back through that. So I'm interested in how you know, and, and I'm not trying to suggest that I think that affairs are new or that speaking back is new, but how does this become more scandalous than, say, previous ways of speaking back? So I'm interested in understanding how what counts as scandalous oh, uh, shifts over time and what what uh, structures those shifts. Is it the use of technology in this case? Is it the form? And that's one of the, one of the examples, I think, of the scandals that I'm following. Conscious that we've taken up a, a lot of your time Radhika you've been very generous with us and thank you guys awesome. so much for taking the time to read the book and for this it was a really lovely conversation you've been listening to another episode of conversations in anthropology a podcast about life the universe and anthropology this podcast is produced by David Border-Giles Timothy Neal Cameo Daly Mythley Maher and Matt Barlow and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter, we're at AnthroConvo, and don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.